That doesn't mean people don't practice that way. That is a type of concentration practice that can be quite useful, but it's not what we call vipassana or this general approach to mindfulness practice. We may be aware of the breath, but we're not excluding other phenomena like what the person is saying. And to the degree I'm really intimate with the body, intimate with the breath, I'll be intimate with other things that are arising. This field of awareness, I'll hear what the person has seen, I'll see them, but their body, you know, their body language, I'll take it all in. Because intimacy, you know, it's all inclusive. It's like those bumper stickers, God bless America. But that's not how it works, you know. If we're really conceiving of an all loving being, that all-loving being is not going to pick and choose according to our wishes. Well, so, it's the same thing. When we uncover that actual quality of love, well, by definition, love, real love, is not an exclusive thing. It's an universal thing. It goes equally out in all directions. That's its actual nature. It isn't that we have to make love do that. If it's not doing that, if we haven't actually uncovered what we mean by love or kindness or compassion. Because it is, that's why the Buddhist traditions, we call them the four boundless qualities or the four immeasurable qualities because that is their nature to not have boundaries. And when you, some of you later in the Buddhist tradition, hundreds of years later, they came up with this whole formulation that you start, and we often do this here at Comground, you start with like a, a person where it's easy to have feelings of loving kindness, maybe our dog, or a nephew, or niece, somebody that's not so complicated that we have a lot of natural kindness for. And then we learn how that that good feeling that I easily have for that easy person, actually, when I really look at that quality of love, I can't stop it from going elsewhere. That's the whole pattern, that's the sort of formal process of opening up until the heart goes in all directions equally. We're finding that the real love we have for another being, when you really tune into the love, not to the other being, you see that that love doesn't care about any boundaries that your mind might create. It just naturally wants to expand as its very nature. So play with that in your small group. Don't, uh, the, the tendency sometimes is to want to imitate, like you want to imitate really being intimate with what the person's saying, or imitate being really connected or caring a lot about what the person's saying. But you don't have to do that. So there's no particular way. You don't have to look the person in the eye. You can have your eyes closed if you want. You don't need to nod or do any sort of body language in response to what the person's saying. In fact, the less the better, generally speaking, just be relaxed and present. So that we're not uh, falling into the habit of, like, oh, in this social situation, I have to play a certain role so that that person feels, feels comfortable. No, we're giving each other permission. We're just, the person speaking is going to trust 
that the two of you who are listening are just doing your best to be present, to be real, to be receptive, to be not judging. And being a human being, we're going to realize that it's not so easy. So, you know, we're okay with everybody doing their best instead of expecting their listening to be perfect. In the same way, I don't expect my sharing to be perfect. And that's the other part of the small verse where we're really learning how to just, like we'll have some time to reflect on what we're going to say, but then let it be an act of nature, what you say. It doesn't have to be a, a planned presentation. You can just start. And if you run out of things to say, it's really okay just to relax there in the silence for the other people. And just keep reflecting silently in your mind. And then while you still have time, if you later have something to say, then just say it. So it's okay for there to be gaps where there's silence. And you're just sitting together. And everybody together is making it okay that it's silent for a while. And, you know, really anything goes in these small group sharings. But, you know, we have this theme, cultivating wholesome relationships, and you can share about, like, the two reflections we did last week, and we did part of them again this week, where we remember a time when we felt love, and then we notice that, oh, that feeling of being loved, really loved, that's happening right now. Sure, there's a memory, you know, and when I bring that memory to mind, but then there's something right here and now. And whatever that is, it's here and now. It's here in me, in a sense. So even though the story says that somebody gave it to me, they loved me, they accepted me, but that good feeling is here. That's interesting. You can talk about how that is for you. Or the other thing we did last week was uh, this repeated question. Question is what for those of you who weren't here, what kind of love do you most long for? Like what would that really give you? What kind of love do you really long for? And what would that give you? So that's something you can reflect and talk about in your small group. I'm just mentioning these things now so that as I'm talking tonight, in the next twenty minutes, you might have some thoughts about what you'd like to share in this small group. Another thing you could uh, share about is uh, what particular pattern uh, John Lowell in his book, Perfect Love and Perfect Relationships, I mentioned this last week. It's a nice resource that we want to dig in a little bit more. He talks about it as a, a core grievance pattern. So we're all doing our best to work with the pain of insecurity, vulnerability. It just comes with human existence, this kind of cultural conditioning that we have. And so often, if it's established quite, quite young, you know, we have problems with the way it is. We have problems with our parents being inconsistent, sometimes loving, sometimes impatient with us. You know, when I 
to change my diaper, or I, you know, burp up, or I scream, and you're tired. So, these patterns are very early of struggling, different ways of struggling, different ways of trying to get what we need to feel safe. And, of course, you know, as children, the way we feel safe is getting, you know, having some sense of control, like getting that person over there to do what will make me feel better, or to do what will make get take away what is bothering me or scaring me. So we learn these different patterns, and then, you know how it is, we tend to replicate them, just assume it's going to work over here, and then over here, and over here. So we keep using these basic social patterns, patterns of control, patterns of being the victim, patterns of being loud, patterns of being quiet, patterns of dismissing, I can't count, being, you know, withdrawn in different ways, patterns of like making deals, I'll do this, you do that. You know, we, this is what we teach our children or young people. We're basically, this is cultural conditioning, we're teaching them all of these you know, relatively wholesome and relatively or sometimes extremely unwholesome patterns to handle their life with. And then some of these patterns just become really well established in the Buddhist tradition. And we talk about three personality types, the greedy type, the aversive type, or the deluded type. And, you know, generally speaking, it seems a useful concept to see what is the predominant way of struggling that we, that we use in most situations, not in every situation. Do I tend to be greedy, trying to get things that will make me happy? Developing all kinds of skillful means to get what I want. Thinking that if I get what I want, I'll be happy. Or do we have a critical, aversive basic strategy, grievance pattern? Hating, judging, seeing what's wrong, pointing it out, being angry, being aggressive, being controlling, being fearful. Soon things are all together. Or do we have a deluded type? That's our strategy for taking care of the security. Being uh, unaware, I just don't want to be here. So I won't. I'll just put my mind somewhere else. I'll use my imagination, or I'll go numb, or I'll distract myself this way or that way. Or I'll pretend that it doesn't really matter. Or I'll pretend that I already know. And so I won't stay interested. I won't stay alert. So, this is something you can talk about in your small group, and to see how this pattern looks, it's the same pattern, but it looks different in different places in your life. What greed looks like in your intimate relationship. How do you get your desires met? How do you get your desires met out of the world of your colleagues, the people you work with, or the 
your siblings, to your other family members, how in the world, how do you get to these kinds? How do you manipulate, how do you act out for you? So this would be a good thing to share too. And then the last thought for the small groups is just your experience of intimacy. What's the shadow of intimacy like pretending for intimate that we're really having a moment here? I want to have a moment here with you. Uh, always never really satisfied with the intimate moments we're having, so always wanting another intimate moment because whatever intimate moments we have are enough. So we're always after the better the next. We even drive our pets crazy. Generally, it's been dread to handle human neurotic But some of them can handle, like, how much we need to have that moment with them. You know, they just, especially cats. <laughs> That's enough.
as I shared with you this afternoon, and I actually, if you opened it and printed it right after I shared it, probably around 4.30, there's been some changes. And I call it a working draft, because I imagine over the years I've been working on it, but I've tried to just put a few principles down. Don't imagine that it's complete by any means. That can just stimulate your own reflecting. That's the point. Working draft, principles for wholesome relating. So I just want to go through this. You can print it when you get home, and if you didn't receive it, if you're not on the email list, I'll have it up on our webpage, the Good Studies webpage, which anybody can go to, because that, you can just go to the Comic-Con website, you can go to programs, look at the Buddhist Studies class, and Shelley's put the link there in the description for the class, and it will take you to the website. Or you can remember BuddhistStudies.ComicRoundMeditation.org, and that will take you to the webpage. And all the talks, um, Caleb and Andre are putting the talks, the meditation up there, and then all the handouts, uh, readings are up there too. Patrice sent a really good one. Uh, so if you find any good readings, send them my way and we'll get them up. And by the way, if anybody's willing to scan a few pages, I don't know how to scan several pages and make them one document. So if you know how to do that, that really helps. And then you can send it to me. You see me right after class today. So on this document that I shared with you, the first point I talked about last week, relationships are not a set thing. Rather, they are alive and changing. Instead of thinking in terms of my relationship, we can recognize how the heart and mind is related in this moment. With this attitude, we can learn about the particular consequences of relating in this way versus relating in that way. How can we learn how to relate skillfully? So it's not a set thing. That's a great fact to remember. Because even if we have moments of relating unskillfully, even the deep hole, there's nothing stopping us in any moment from turning that around. Because it's actually relatively easy. All we have to do is acknowledge in an honest, skillful way that we're relating in an unwholesome way. See, that term, and even if sometimes you can do it out loud with whoever you're with, but even if that's not appropriate, even there, silently in your own heart and mind, just realizing that this isn't going well. This isn't helping. Whatever is going on between the two of us or the all of us, this is not helping, not good. All of a sudden, right then, we're related to our own pain or confusion in a wholesome way. So that's the start. So we want to see it as an ongoing dynamic. There's always the next moment to relate skillfully, no matter how much momentum there is with whatever old pattern has been triggered. And we're being defensive or we're being or we're being, we're closing down, whatever our particular pattern might be. The second point here, instead of assuming that we are relating with another person, we can recognize that we are actually related to our subjective experience that we externalize and imagine to be another person. In other words, we are first and foremost related to the creations or constructions of our own mind. Now, don't misunderstand this, because 
you don't want to go off to your people at work, or whatever department you're going tonight, and tell them your construction of my mind. <laughs> it's not you I hate. It's the construction of my mind I hate. Well, you are having a problem. But what we want to do is, it really, this reflection is a skillful game for taking responsibility for what's going on. Because when we realize that the problem is here, not there, and the other person, that's the point. So we have to understand that whatever is happening, the mind is interpreting that. And that interpretation is then what the mind reacts to. And all of that is happening here, the body, mind, and heart, or this. So, you know, poets and other people have tried to explain this to us, right? That the relationships are this very interesting dynamic where they involve other beings. Our relationships generally involve other beings. But they're a very personal thing, our relationships. They're happening in our heart, in our mind. And do we need other people, other beings to be different than they are in order to have healthy relationships? You know, pick somebody you have an unhealthy relationship with. Maybe some politician that you've projected a lot of negative stuff on or whomever it is for you. Now, does that person in some actual way need to change in order for you to have a healthy, enlivening, loving, compassionate relationship? Yes. It sure seems that way. Or at least it seems like it would be easy if they change. Sure, I can do the hard work, but you're the one who really needs to do the work. Or I'll do some work if you do some work. But you see, if we take up the second reflection, we realize that I always have the incentive to do the work, regardless of the other person wanting or realizing that they have work to do too. And that is skillful. Whether it's true or not is an important thing. What's important is is it a skillful attitude to have that I can take responsibility for the skillfulness of me related? So when we think of it as a relationship, it's very easy to project the blame on the other person. We built this thing together, and you haven't held up your end of the bargain. But when we think of it as a way of relating, it seems much more personal and and that I'm more responsible for doing what I can do because I'm the one relating to what I take this relationship to be. So what can I do? How can I relate differently? It's a dynamic, it's an ongoing thing. Let me try some other ways of relating. Let's see. Let's see what can be made of this. The third point, our ways of relating to others are mostly used to increase pleasure and avoid pain. So this is like supposed to be a breath of honesty for us. Like just get, I really see this in my, you know, my relationship with my wife, Lynn. <laughs> and it's humiliating to see that so much of what the just the moment-to-moment dynamic is just 
this pleasure-pain dynamic, you know, getting rid of pain, getting pleasure, and then that mechanism of wanting pleasure and not wanting pain, and then pulling that other person in and seeing what I can, like, how can I use her and my relationship, my way of being with her to get my desire for pleasure met and my desire to get rid of pain met. And if you can't help me, <laughs> why bother with the relationship? If you're not going to make me feel better or get rid of this lonely feeling I have, you know, it's why bother with all that work of relationship? So to be really honest, that that's basically what it's about. And look at that in terms of your relationship to your pets and everybody. Uh, just sort of stripping or deconstructing that, and it, don't judge this. This is just kind of the basic survival dynamic that's built into living being. But we're not, we don't have to, we're not destined to be limited by this, but we definitely have to be honest about this uh, dynamic of wanting to increase pleasure and avoid pain. I continue writing. We are always doing our best to manage the pain of vulnerability and insecurity. Remember, it's not easy to be a human being with a conditioned mind that grasps after pleasant experiences and pushes away unpleasant experiences. We most often evaluate our relationships according to how well they help us optimize this pleasure-pain dynamic. The relationships we like are the ones that help us get pleasure and avoid or take away pain. And the ones that seem to give us more pain and don't give us pleasure, we think those are bad relationships. To change this, this is the, I think the next point here. Instead of using our ways of relating to others to control the pain of insecurity, we can use the relationships to wake up, to better understand the nature of the mind, and the forces of fear, and the sense of lack that shape it. Perhaps our relationships are best thought of as teachers. Right? Because remember, some of you maybe came to the Sunday talks, either the morning or the evening, but I was talking about the refuges and this dynamic of the Buddha knowing Dhamma, the awakened, clear, fearless presence, opening to the way it is. So Dhamma is like that which we relate to. Those people, those things, we relate to. That's what Dhamma, that's the way it is. And we need the way it is because how do we realize the heart that's not afraid of anything? How do we realize the heart that's willing to include everything? If we don't use Dhamma the way it is, the people who are there in our lives, we need to use whoever there is who's ever showing up in our life. Not people we want to be showing up in our lives, or the creatures, the beings that are showing up in our lives, but the ones that are actually showing up in our lives. It's really this dynamic of Buddha knowing Dhamma where freedom is realized. We have to find the freedom in the relationships we have. So that's what I mean by using or seeing them as teachers. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes it is appropriate to retreat, you know, because 
we don't know how to practice being skillful with this relationship. So we go, we retreat from that relationship, and we get better, more skillful at the relationships where we have some sense of how to be skillful and free and alive and fearless and loving. And we hone our skills so that someday, maybe we can go back to that sibling or back to that former partner or back to that person that is so difficult. Mindfulness reveals that the mind tends to replicate existing ways of relating when initiating a new relationship. I mentioned this earlier tonight. If it works well enough, the pattern can become locked in. It becomes, it can be difficult to change patterns once they become well established. Then I just mentioned the Buddhist three personality types that I talked about. And then the last one, I just mentioned a number of um, spectrums that you can just use to reflect on the relationships. Dependence versus non-fear of independence. So basically, unskillful versus skillful. So just kind of provoke you to think. Some of these will work for you, some of these won't. But generally, you know, we justify dependence. Different ways of thinking that dependence is a good thing. So then when you're doing that in a relationship, look at the possibility of not being afraid of independence. Or if you think independence is the way, right? This is sort of stereotypically more of a male thing, you know, not wanting to be tied down, then we want to look at the fear of commitment or fear of dependence as a movement towards liberation. The need of independence is in the way of being free. Or uh, any sense of lack or neediness versus the possibility of equanimity or contentedness. Attached love, dependent love versus a basic generosity of the heart. So a love we're giving away freely, not expecting, not a business that like expecting something in return for it. Sensual pleasure versus not, sensual uh, pleasure is somehow bad versus not confused by the pleasure of relationship. So not rejecting sense pleasure, the pleasure of relationships, but not being confused by it. So when you're having a really beautiful interaction with another being, maybe we can just let it be that, but not more than what it is. Just what Actually, it's a way of being more intimate with pleasure that arises sometimes in a relationship. Asceticism versus not being afraid of engagement with the world. So instead of thinking asceticism is the way, disengagement, having enough of this world, I really see the non-fear of engagement as a way towards liberation. Safety versus freedom and ease with impermanence and uncertainty. Feeling hard as self versus the feeling hard as nature. Fixing the pain in our lives versus trusting pain as a natural part of life. Separation versus intimacy with all things. Spiritual bypass, if we can avoid what's difficult, versus relationships as teachers the place to realize freedom. So we'll have a copy. You can just kind of copy at home, but I thought I'd run through that. So we're going to divide now into groups of three. Remember the
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.